You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you and your mercy have brought us together today. Lord, these are discordant times, and I think we feel it in so many ways as we look at our culture around us. Very difficult to navigate it. And yet, O Lord, I pray that today, um, through these ancient words of the Bible, that you'll give us a sense of the way in which you want us to order our thoughts and our affections in times like this. I pray that you'll help me as I teach. I pray that you'll help those who are here to listen, that you'll give us guidance and wisdom. Lord, we need the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, so I want to turn to the book of Psalms again today. And who who all who all was here last week? Was it, you, I was good. I was going. I'm going to give you a quiz later. Um, for, for those who were here last week, you'll remember part of what we're thinking through is this is, and I didn't really state it clearly last week. But what's what's the significance and the implication? of the way in which the Bible's actually put together? That, that's, that's a question that I don't, I don't think we always ask when reading the Bible. Um, and I actually think it's a really important question, and it's a bit of a slippery one, admittedly. There's, there's a slippery part to this, because not all of the ordering of our Bible is stable. There, there, are, there are moving parts. So I'll give you an example. We'll talk about this some more next week, maybe. Um, but the book of Ruth, for example, is, is a kind of wandering book like the people that are being narrated in the story. So you have Naomi and her husband and Kilion and, um, and Malion. Is it, what is this? Kilion and... Anyway, her two sons, and they end up in... Malin. Malin and Kilion, that's right. So they end up in, in Moab. Um, and so you have this sense within the book of Ruth that, the, that things are moving. Um, and, and it's interesting that the book of Ruth itself can move canonically. So if you look at the way in which our English Bibles have it ordered, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then what? Ruth, bridging us into Samuel. And, and that actually, um, we have plenty of seats in here, um, that, that actually works. Um, the, we could, move that to your... Yeah, yeah. How are you, young lady? Um, it, it actually works because there are in, internal clues to the book of Ruth that show a kind of, I'll use a, the technical term here, but an intertextual link between a judges and Ruth. These were the days when the judges judged, and you have a link there. So it actually fits canonically right where the book of Ruth is in our English Bibles. That works. But it also works canonically right after Proverbs 31 which is where it is in the Hebrew canon. So the book of Ruth, as one of these members of the writings that we're talking about here, this third section of the Old Testament, has the ability to wander, and, and the instinct to try to make it fit one place alone is an unnecessary one. And I, it's funny, I, and maybe this is just a personality defect of mine, but I'm, I'm a big have-one's-cake-and-eat-it-too kind of guy. You know, so when, like, I'm, when you're forced on, I was talking to a friend this week, and, and he was saying, I've got these two decisions before me. And I'm like, well, can you do both? I mean, can it be both and? Um, hey, y'all, come on in. There you are. 
Victor, you want to sit back here? I'll sit back there. I didn't register. It's my better view anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so that, that's the nature of the book of, of, of Ruth, how it can move as well. So I'm, I'm thinking out loud a little bit about the ways in which the Bible is actually structured and why that's important. Um, and now I'm going from that sort of macro view down to the book of Psalms itself. I want to think about the book of Psalms today with you from an aerial viewpoint of how the whole book is actually put together. Um, and, and, and I'll just tell you, I'm, I'm going to make a lot of assertions this morning. I'm not going to argue. Um, but th- this is, I wouldn't say it's controversial, but not everyone agrees with what I'm saying to you this morning. Okay, unfortunately, you just have me. I do think and believe that there's an actual intentionality. Um, it's not a happen chance that the book of Psalms is put together the way in which it's put together. Not all of the bits fit in the way in which I'm about to explain to you the, the canonical, what I call the canonical shaping of the book of Psalms. Not all of the bits fit this way, but I think from an aerial viewpoint, I, there is an intentionality to how the book of Psalms is actually structured and shaped which tells us something, I think, about the theological center of the Psalms. Um, and I do believe, that the, I, I thought about this yesterday, the theological center of the Psalms is, is something, especially in our moment, that we really need to hold on to as Christians. And I'm, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what it is just yet. Um, but I really think it's important for us to hold on to as Christians. So can I talk to you a little bit? Do, do you have, if you, if you want a Bible, I don't, I don't know if they're... If, if you can toss them around, David. Um, and some of you have heard some of this before, so forgive me for repeating. Hi, y'all. Is there anyone if you want one? So maybe you have noticed before that the book of Psalms is structured in a five-book structure. Okay. So, for example, if you have Psalm 1, uh, at the top of Psalm 1, and we talked about Psalm 1 and 2 last week, if you remember, Psalm 1, right above it, says Book 1. Everybody see that in your, in your Bible there? Right, flip a few pages and go to Psalm 42. And if you see at the top of Psalm 42, what does it say there? Book 2. Well, you can kind of see where we're going here. Go to a Psalm 73, and I want to stop there for a second. Go to Psalm 73. You see that Psalm 73 begins Book 3. Now, uh, uh, let me stop here. I, I'm just going to tell you where we're going. It's a five-book structure. So the Psalms are put together in a five-book structure, which again tells us something about, and the, 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 the rabbinic tradition is that Ezra was the one responsible for this ordering. We don't, we don't really know. Um, but whoever was involved, whatever scribal school was involved with ordering the Psalms in this way, what they are in effect doing is showing you that the Psalms in their five-book structure are mirroring the Pentateuch. So they look like the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that five-book structure. So you have a kind of mirroring of the, of the actual Psalter to the structure of the Torah itself. I think that's really important. Because that tells us something about what the Psalms actually are and how they've been received. We all know that the Psalms are human words of deep feeling and pathos directed to God. Don't want to diminish that in any way. The Psalms are human words, prayers, born out of real life circumstances that people bring before the God of heaven. 
But what the structure of the Psalter wants you to know is they aren't nearly that. These, these Psalms are, and this is, to me, this has been sort of eye opening uh, in my own study. The Psalms are Torah, they're instruction. God is giving us a manual here for what life looks like before Him and what God expects our speech patterns to be before Him. In other words, there's an authorizing element in the Psalms themselves to say, God wants you and authorizes you to speak to Him, to pray to Him in these multifaceted ways. And that's a bit of a stunner. Because there are portions of the Psalms, lots of portions of Psalm 13, Psalm 44, Psalm 73. We'll look at this in a second. There are portions of the Psalms, and in fact, the majority of them are lament Psalms that say things to God that we would consider, I think if we're honest, to be rather risky. Um, and this risky language that you have in the Psalms is, again, authorized by God because this is Torah. Now, again, as an aside, I wasn't really planning on talking about this per se, but as an aside, I think it's important uh, to notice here that one of the, I think one of the effects of this canonical shaping as Torah um, is an indication to us of what God expects from us relationally. I, I, this, this is worth pondering. Um, for those of you who are in you know, m- relationships with other people, which I'm assuming that's all of you. I was thinking like, I think about married people, but all of you. Um, we, we know how ap- absolutely dehumanizing, for example, the, the silent treatment can be in marriage, right? I mean, this is when you actually treat the other person in a way that we would consider to be indifference. Now, we've all talked about this before. Uh, you know, the opposite of love and marriage is not hate per se, because, the, I mean, when you're, when you're fighting for something, there's still there's something to be fought for, right? Um, and I've been married long enough now to where I like a good fight every once in a while. It's kind of fun. Um, but uh, indifference is where things, are, where things get kind of uh, uh, tricky and actually perilous. And I think that's, in effect, what the Psalter is saying to us about our relationship with God and what he is teaching us here. There are some things in here that are risky, that are being said to me in ways that actually could be perceived as offensive. Yet, I want you to know, I want you, and all of you, just, I, but I don't want you to be indifferent. You can talk to me in all these ways, but don't be indifferent. Pray to me. When you're in disorientation and you feel like I'm not living up to the promises that I've made to you, talk to me about that. I've got lots of psalms ready for you to pray to me in those ways. When you feel like the promises that I made to you are not actually happening, that's we're going to look at that in Psalm 73 in a second. When you feel like that's happening to you, I'm giving you words here in the Bible that you can actually directly address me about those things. So the Psalter here, again, in its instructional character, is telling us something about the whole range of emotions and feelings and speech patterns that we can have before the living God. And I think if you step back and just think about that, like you're in a picture gallery looking at paintings, it's stunning when you think about what God allows us and the space that God creates for us to have in our relating to Him. So I want to stop for a second while we're here and just look at Psalm 73, which is the beginning of Book 3. right? And we're going to move. This is not. I'm still telling I haven't got to the big ta-da of the day. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sustain that for a second, but, uh, or suspend it. But here you look at Psalm 73. So someone read out loud for me, uh, Psalms, if you have it here, Psalm 72, verse 20. This is one of those, 
uh, Houston, we've got a problem versus. I will. Thank you. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Period. Period. Now that wasn't really inspiring. Uh, well, your reading was good, so, but but the uh, but the, it's what, what's 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 why is this a trouble? It's trouble because all you have to do is turn about three or four pages, and you're going to find another David Psalm. And so there there are more David Psalms that are in the Book of Psalms, and yet here you have Psalm seventy-two, verse twenty, saying the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, have just come to an end. Now let's talk about this for a second. Lots of lots of mystery here. There's an enigmatic quality to this verse. Um, one, I think, rather obvious answer to this, I think it's too obvious, but one rather obvious answer is, perhaps in the compositional history of the book of Psalms, at one point in time, Psalm 72 ended an earlier collection of the Psalms. And that's very conceivable. We recognize that some of the books of the Bible kind of grow over time. There's a developmental process. So that's, that's very possible. Maybe there was an early collection in the first temple of David's psalms that had been together and then had kind of grown over time, and the scribes just left that in out of respect for the text, and they moved on. That's possible. Another reason, and, I, and, I'm, and, I, and by the way, I'm not, I think this can be both and, not either or. Another reason we might have Psalm 72 or verse 20 here um, is a theological matter, or maybe a literary one. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And then we move into Psalm 73, which you notice is the beginning of Book 3. So what's that issue here? What's at issue here is, if you think about the larger shape of the Psalter, the first two books, Psalms 1 through 72, are books that are highly Davidic in nature. A high collection of David psalms in these first two books of the Psalter. There are more later, but a high collection here, which emphasize, one could argue, the importance of the Davidic king for the shaping of Israel's life before God and future hopes. So you have the centrality of the promise that God makes to David, the Davidic king, the sweet singer of Israel, the man after God's own heart, and the importance of David and the institution that he represents, the Davidic throne in Judah, for Israel's life before God, now and forever. So that's a, think, think um, 2 Samuel 7, for example, the, 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 the covenant that God makes with David. But then when we move into book 3, and this I want to talk about this a little bit, this is where the Davidic covenant becomes problematized. This is the place where the promises that God made, like in 2 Samuel 7, um, meet life and the complexity of Israel's life. And now Israel is wrestling in book 3 with the promises that God has made regarding David and how are they to navigate this moving forward. So think about this from the standpoint of the history of Israel. right? So you, you know the, the, the history of Israel. I think it's so fascinating. Uh, Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon passes off the scene. That's the golden era. Um, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, uh, and this is a great, great verse. No, Second Kings three verse one, um, and Solomon loved the Lord. Second Kings eleven, the last chapter of Solomon, verse one, uh, and Solomon loved many foreign women. This is so juxtaposed. There, it's like it's stark. He loved the Lord at the beginning of his of his reign. He loved many foreign women at the end of his reign. I mean, things are coming unglued at the end. 
And in that transition of power, which is deeply problematic, you have the splitting of the kingdoms. Rehoboam uh, stays in the south. Jeroboam goes to the north. The kingdoms are divided between Israel and Samaria in the north, Judah and Jerusalem in the south. And then you follow through the book of Kings, this incredibly complicated, um, and, and it could be even perceived as boring if one reads through Kings. I mean, just being honest with you, but this incredibly complicated, if not boring, history of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom as they're wrestling with their life before God. And you have these, what they call regnal formulas that carry you all the way through. And this king did what was right in the sight of the Lord. This king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and you kind of follow all the way through until you get to the end of the book of Kings, and there you have Zedekiah, the last Davidic king on the throne before Nebuchadnezzar and his marauding hordes come from Babylon, take siege of Jerusalem in 587, 586 BC, and they drag Zedekiah. You know, the horrible, it's a horrible scene. They, put, they killed Zedekiah's children in front of him, and then they poked out his eyes and drove him uh, away in exile, uh, to, to, and then he dies there and never comes back. So think about this. Here's the promise that God made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, there will always be a king on your throne. And then we move into the exile, and we just saw Zedekiah hauled off by Nebuchadnezzar, and we don't have a Davidic king on the throne anymore. We have a puppet governor named uh, Gedaliah who's on the throne, who's just basically a, a, a kind of a think Vichy France. You know, he's just standing there in place of the arm of of, of Babylon itself. So again, I'm careful about drawing too many analogies here, but I think that history of Israel itself can be mapped in, in a soft way on the book of Psalms too. Because here you move from books 1 and 2 into what one might consider or at least perceive to be the exilic period of book 3. And there's a high collection of lament psalms in book 3. In fact, the only lament psalm in all of the Bible that doesn't end in praise, most of them end in praise, but the only lament psalm that doesn't end in praise is located right here in book 3, Psalm 88. That's right. And, here's, and how does Psalm 88 end? The darkness is my closest friend. Period. Like, there's got to be more. And there is more. It's Psalm 89. But yeah, you want to ask him? Well, I, that, what came to mind in verse 20 to me was when David is fasting and praying for his and Bathsheba's child that dies. And when the child dies, he gets up and his prayers are ended. He gets up and begins to live again, I guess you'd say. I, I've not thought about that reading. That, that's that's interesting. Does it, does it contextualize it at the beginning well, of Psalm 72? Oh, you're, you're sort of linking it in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. In a, in a personal thing, we do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Whether you're in a time of wilderness, whatever it might be, depression or, or just a big right. issue in life, that you're deep in prayer, you're whatever, and then you have to life you have to get up and go i guess you'd say yeah yeah and israel you know they stopped calling on the name of the lord for yes 15, 20 years yes that's right so that's right no the nation does this as well right right yeah that's fascinating and i think that's where you know this sort of sense of what one does in the midst of again this confliction between what we believe and what we're experiencing really sits right here on psalm 73 um so i Again, not just asserting this to you, but I'm pretty persuaded that Psalm 73 is the book hinge around which the whole of the Psalter moves. 
Psalm 73 is right here at the beginning of book 3, and it's, uh, it's Janus-faced. It's looking backwards and forwards at the same time. It's looking backwards to the promises that God made in the first two books related to the Davidic promise, and it's looking forward to the darkness that Israel is having to experience collectively and individually. I mean, look at the first verse here. Uh, Truly, um, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now that's, that's a confession of faith. That is, if I can put it to you this way, that's Asaph, who's a temple priest, saying, I've read Psalm 1 and I've confessed it to be true. What's Psalm 1 say? Don't sit, stand, walk with the ungodly, but, but walk in the way of the righteous, delight in God's law. And if you walk in God's law, you will be like a tree that's planted. Da, 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 da. And here's Psalm 73, 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. If you do Psalm 1, God will be good to you. Um, here's a little Hebrew for all of you for the day. Anytime you see a B-U-T in the Psalms, it's, it's important. It shows a significant transition that actually in the Hebrew language itself is indicated by a grammatical form. I won't bore you with the details. So the fact that you have a B-U-T at the beginning of verse 2 of Psalm 73 is interpretively significant. I don't think Asaph is saying Psalm 73-1 tongue-in-cheek or with a curled lip. And there are interpreters who say that because of the content about, of what we're about to read. But there are some who say, he's saying... Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Yeah, right. Sure he is. Right. I think he's, he's, he is leaning hard into Israel's confession of faith of what they believe to be true. We did it together this morning in church if you were in the 915 service. Think about what we said together in our church today. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We prayed that together. We confessed that together. That's a confession about God's sovereignty and reach over all of creation. We say that all the time. And yet we look at the events of the world around us and we go, is that true? Does, does God's sovereign providential reach really extend over all of creation in this moment right now? Those are the kind of things that I think we feel and the psalmist does as well. Because after verse 1 he says, I know that that's what I confess to be true. Let me tell you what I've been experiencing. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the... And here's one of those places where maybe translations get a little bit too um, uh, not helpful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, that's a, that word prosperity is a Hebrew word that you see on bumper stickers all over Birmingham. Shalom, right? Um, human flourishing. Back in Psalm 27... God promises this word, shalom, to his faithful people. Shalom is yours. So in effect, what Asaph is saying is, all that stuff about your promises, about giving us shalom, all those things that you said, they are not working themselves out. In fact, I look at the arrogant and the, and the, and the proud, and they seem to be inhabiting the space of the promises that you promised to us. Up is down, down is up. Everything's flipped upside down for Asaph. So, again, I don't want to spend too much time in Psalm 73, but you can sense here the tension that's building in the Psalms, built around its own structure. This is what I confess to be true. This is what I'm experiencing. And then when you get to the end of the Psalm, reorientation occurs when God comes from the periphery again back to the center. And what I think is really important, again, from, a, from a, at least a Christian practical standpoint, is Asaph's actual 
the cause of Asaph's angst is not uh, done away with in this psalm. What happens is his orientation is adjusted again back to the centrality of God and God's ways, even when they appear mysterious. So here you have books one and two promising Davidic promises. Books three bringing us into the challenge of what it means to hope in God when those promises seem to be failing us, at least from our perception. Which then open up, and this was where I was really wanting to get to today, which opens up to book four of the Psalter. Which is at the beginning of Psalm 90. And this is beautiful. Um, I, 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 again, there are lots of people who write on this stuff. Um, I do think from, there's a, there can be an argument that the editorial heart of the Psalter, theologically speaking, does reside here in book four. And we're going to press into it. But look how book four begins. You had Psalm 88, that really dark psalm. Open up to Psalm 89, which gives us a sprinkle, I shouldn't say a sprinkle, a, a, a bright ray of hope that then moves to this beautiful prayer of Moses that begins Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place before in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or you would ever form the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Those words right there are in effect the psalmist letting you know this is the major theme of Psalm 90, book 4, and really the heart of the Psalter. A worldview, an understanding of our lives and our existence that brings God to the center and recognizes that He is God from everlasting to everlasting. And it has a really deep sense of, our, of, the, of the understanding of our own limitations and frailty as well. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand days, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, or when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So there's a sense, it's a beautiful thing here. Beginning of book 4 emphasizes... Um, and this is, an, this is kind of a clunky way of saying it, the godness of God, right? And the creatureliness of you and, and, and me. God is God. He's everlasting. His ways are beyond our complete knowing and perceiving and understanding. And we are the creature made from dust, and from dust we will return. And there's actually a sense in which, I don't know if you feel this way, there's a sense in which there is, there's, um, there's peace and comfort that comes along with, with being reoriented toward reality as it ultimately is. God's godness, his otherness, his holiness, his power, his love, his wisdom, his might, in the face of our creatureliness and our limitations. And when we let go into that and release ourselves into it, do you know, by the way, what the language in the Psalms is of that release? You find it at the end of Psalm 2 and all the way through. Here's the language of release. I have hid myself in the shadow of your wings. I take refuge in you. That refuge language, hiding in the shadow of his wings language, that is the language of release in the face of the godness of God, his character, and the creatureliness that we know that we inhabit, which limits our knowledge and our understanding and our physical abilities in the, in the face of the challenges of this world. So where is all this going in book four? Well, it's moving. And it's moving, I think, um, to what... And again, people talked about this, but you just get me this morning. Um, to what some will argue is the editorial heart of the Psalter here in Book 4, which is Psalm 96, 97, 98, 99, culminating in Psalm 100. So if you look at these here, 
you'll notice a theme that appears throughout these psalms. And what's this, the theme? The Lord reigns. The Lord rules. And if you look at Psalm 98, the Lord is king. Can I read Psalm 98 to you? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He's revealed His righteousness, His saving actions. In the sight of all the nations, He's remembered His steadfast love and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and praise. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre, and the sound of melody, with trumpets and horns. Make a joyful noise before, and here's the operative word, who? The King, the Lord. This is the reorientation that I think the Psalms want you to understand in your movement from books 1 and 2 of the Psalter to the challenges of book 3 into the resolve, the denouement, whatever you want to call it, of book 4. And it is what? It's that when the earthly king is overturned, God, and this is a pattern of the Bible, likes to pull back the heavens for His people to remind them that their ultimate king is still sitting on His throne. The Lord is king, and the king will return. The earthly king is his representative here on earth, but the earthly king, and you've read the book of Kings before in Samuel, the earthly king is marked by the frailty and the fallenness that you and I know as well. Our ultimate king is King Jehovah himself revealed in Jesus, who will return to bring righteousness and equity to the world. And by the way, what you see here happening in this canonical shaping of the Psalms is what I think is a major theme of the Bible itself. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. I love this, Isaiah 6. So who was a Uzziah? Was Uzziah a good king or a bad king in the southern kingdom of Judah? He was a good king, a righteous king. And if you, again, we had the benefit of having read the book of Kings now, but we know that once a righteous king passes off the scene, man, if I'm going to Vegas and betting on the next king, I'll probably go unfaithful if I have to. Because there seems to be this back and forth between the generations. So here's Uzziah, a righteous king, a moment of the transition of power, right, from one king to another, which was a, which was a, a moment fraught with tensions, and with danger in the ancient world, when you transition from power from one king to another, I mean, as, as an aside, one of the reasons why Nebuchadnezzar, for example, um, ended up coming and destroying the southern kingdom of Judah in 586, he started, you know, in like 597 B.C. But you know what happened? Domestic turmoil back in Babylon. People were trying to, there was, there was a coup d'etat that was trying to be attempted on his, on his reign. So he had to go all the way back to Babylon and deal with his domestic problems that took him about a decade to deal with. And unfortunately for Judah, they thought, well, he's got his own problems, out of sight, out of mind. Um, we'll stop paying our tributes to, to, uh, to uh, Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, you know, of course, once he got things settled domestically, went back to his imperial ways again and destroyed the southern kingdom. In other words, the transition of power has always been a complicated thing within the history of the world. And what the Bible does in such beautiful ways is it moves you from this earthly sphere in the year that King Uzziah died. That's a bad year. That's a year fraught with peril. I saw the Lord 
high and lifted up, seated on his throne. That, that, that's the language, by the way, of apocalypse or apocalyptic language in the Bible, where the Bible will move you from the earthly sphere to the heavenly sphere to let you know that even though you may be experiencing all this kind of chaos in our moment, that chaos is not happening in heaven. Think about uh, the book of Revelation, right? I'm going to turn to it for a second. Weird book. I know it. Huey helicopters and all that in there. I don't fly well. Um, I joke with people that I'm a Calvinist on the ground, but I'm an Arminian at 30,000 feet. Um, and I'll never forget when the Left Behind series was hot as could be. You know, I'm, I'm on a flight, I don't even remember where. And I looked over in the middle of the flight, and there was the stewardess in her seat reading Left Behind. And I'm like, you know, the last place in the world, I want the, no rapture right now, please. Um, but again, wherever you're reading is in Revelation. What you see here, at least in the first five or six chapters, is this movement between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. Right? Revelations 2 and 3. What, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is working through his churches. And he's got things to say. We should read those, by the way, at some point. Jesus is like, I love my church. I love you, Ephesus. But you really need to think about this. Uh, Smyrna? Man, so much going, good going on in Smyrna. But hey, hey, hey. But would, would you want to go to lunch and... Have Jesus walk through the Advent? I, I, I don't know. You Send me a text. I'd, I'd like to know what he'd have to say. So he's moving through his churches here. But what happens right after the kind of messiness of Revelation 2 and 3? Then you go to Revelation 4, right after it. Right after Laodicea. I spew you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. We move to Revelation chapter 4. So it's from the earthly sphere right into the heavenly sphere. And look and behold, a door standing open in heaven and a voice said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. And what did he see? The elders and the martyrs of the faith sitting around the throne, singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isn't that interesting? It's the language of Isaiah 6 that's still ringing out in heaven now with the raised lamb on the throne here in Revelation 4. And then verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. So you see him, you get a big aerial view, but you see this pattern that the Bible has for his people. And we need this. I need this pattern. Um, because if you're like me, and I imagine many of you are, and, and if you're sane, uh, you're probably not like me. Um, but you're reading a lot of news these days. I mean, I, I, I you know, and it's probably unhealthy. Um, I'm supposed to be writing um, right now. And I texted a friend of mine, a um, good friend of mine, and, uh, at the end of the day on Thursday. And I said, I want you to know, I got 20 words in today. 20. Um, I feel like I'm making progress. Um, but the point is, it's really easy to get drawn in. And by the way, I think we should be informed. I'm not castigating that. But it's really easy to get so wrapped up in these things. And, and again, a Christian's relation to the political order is a complicated one. I'm, I, I want to commend a book to you. Read it critically. Okay, read it critically. Um, but it's a kind of newer book that I feel like it's just come at the right time by a man named David Van Drunen. Have you read this? Do you know this one, Tucker? Politics after Christendom. I haven't. I'm not. It's it's really good. I mean, it's it's a it's a if you're interested in kind of thinking through a kind of a, a Christian theology of politics, it's not a it's it's a good 
thoughtful, reformational book. That's a, that's a responsible, in my mind, a responsible two kingdoms approach. All right, now, well, don't worry about all that. My, my point is, I'm thinking a lot about this stuff, as I'm sure you are as well. Recognizing, and I'm, I'm sure you feel this too, recognizing that I'm questioning my own judgment left and right. Like I'm not sure that I can make an assessment about where things are on this issue and that issue. And I don't really care where you are on the political spectrum on these things. I think I'm just speaking to this in a kind of candid, broad-brushed way. And here comes the Psalms in the middle of that. It's like in, the, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Revelation. And it's as if Isaiah 6-1 and Psalm 96-99 through are saying, Yeah, I read, the, I read the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the Times and Uzziah died or something like that. But in the middle of reading the Wall Street Journal or the Times or whatever you're reading, I also have, uh, want you to realize something that when the heavens get peeled back, God's not antsy about this in the way that you are. He's not antsy about it. There's a trust in the sense that His kingly rule is still present and that as Christians, our ultimate hope, though of course we want to be involved in the political order, but our ultimate hope is eschatological. This is why I think a Christian view on some of these things is both involved and invested and detached at the same time. Both. Not, not either or, but kind of involved and invested and also detached as well, if I can use these terms. I think as Christians, we become part of our culture and we bury our roots deeply. This is why someone asked Martin Luther, if you found out that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? Answer, I'd plant an apple tree. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still living in the world in which he's called me to live in. So we're called to that. But we're also pilgrims at the same time. Pilgrims who recognize that our, we're already members of another heavenly kingdom. And it's that heavenly kingdom that really marks our understanding of the world and our hope and place in it. Um, so it's, to me, I just thought it's fascinating to think about the way in which the Psalter is actually shaped moving toward this part here in book four that emphasizes the Lord is king and he's returning to establish equity and justice in the world um, as a kind of reorientation and a hopeful reorientation for Christians in a moment that's, I think, that's politically fraught. All right. You want to ask anything? Want, want, to, want to bat this around? I don't know when I'm supposed to be done in here. Um, anything you want to talk about with this? Questions? Bueller, Bueller? You're not angsty like I am about this. That's good. Liz, yeah. This is going back to what you said earlier about the promise that there would always be a Davidic king on the throne. So where is the king? Is it ever moved? Good question. That's a great question. And I think the answer to that is the actual Davidic promise itself is somewhat complicated. In other words, when you begin to read Second um, Samuel 8 as well, there can be conditional elements to it. And I think this is often the case with some of these promises that you have um, in the Old Testament. For example, with the, with the reception of the land. I mean, the land God gives to his people, but there are kind of conditions that come along with this. There are, what the technical term is Deuteronomistic conditions. Um, so, for example, you see in, um, in Deuteronomy 17, for example, the claim about Israel's king behaving in a certain way in his loyalty to the Lord and his teachings... Um, that's to shape the Davidic king. I mean, to shape the kings, and, and there, there are consequences that come without that. So, I think the fact that you have a hiatus in the Davidic rule um, is something that the scriptures themselves um, anticipate. So, I, I should say that. It's also why, if, if you read in the history of interpretation, why Zerubbabel actually becomes such an important figure. 
And, and, and he, I mean, you talk about, maybe I shouldn't say it this way, but you talk about an uninspiring Davidic king. Like Zerubbabel is about as flat as they come. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's not Bar Kokhba or Judas Maccabeus. I mean, he's, he's like, that, that's our guy. But he's a Davidic heir. And on the far side of the exile, you've got one on the throne who, who's, that, again, the promise of God is now being made good again in, in this particular moment. And of course, as Christians, we understand this, and this is the way the New Testament shapes it. That promise has been fulfilled completely in the, in, in the son of David, Jesus Christ, who is on his throne. Um, so I think that's the kind of move that you have here with Zerubbabel being down payment. But I think what's interesting is Zerubbabel as a figure, as a promise, a promised Davidic king, intimates, I think for, for readers, and you can sense this in the latter prophets as well, there's got to be more. Like Zerubbabel cannot be the, you know, the end-all, be-all of the Davidic hope and promise that we have for our kingdom. There's got to be more. So I think that's some of those dynamics are at play. Lord Jesus, thank you for these friends, and I pray that you'll bless them in your mercies. I pray that you'll strengthen and encourage them in your grace. I pray, Lord, that we will walk before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Um, in Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.